Uh, tonight, uh, we're dealing with a particular, ooh, there we go, a particular question. This mic is okay? Omar, yeah? Okay, good. It, went, it warbled a little bit there. So, again, if I have to switch, you let me know, okay? Yeah. Uh, so, on Palm Sunday, we answered the question, what was it? Yeah, why was Jesus, of all people, weeping on Palm Sunday? Right? So, uh, that we did on Palm Sunday. Tonight, we're going to do, why was Jesus convicted and executed? Now, for this to work, you have to think differently than you're used to thinking in church, all right? You're really going to have to change your mindset a bit to, to grasp this message. Because if you're going to appreciate the death of Jesus, you've got to look at it sometimes at an angle that you maybe aren't used to looking at it. So I want you to take off your your sort of church understanding, because I know what you're thinking. Pastor, this is, Jesus died for our sins. That's why Jesus was convicted, and that's why Jesus was executed. He died for our sins. You're right. You're 100% right. But I want you to forget about that for a minute. You say, but I, that, that's what, the, the, I just, just try and forget about that for a minute. And I want you to do three things. If you're going to grasp this message, this is the, the, the background. Do not include the supernatural events that took place at the crucifixion. Forget about them for a moment. I want you to think of Jesus as a man because he was a man. Yes, he's God, but he's also human, right? So I want you to think of him as a man, a human, who in the first century really lived and was convicted, apparently, of something. We'll try and figure that out soon uh, in this message. But he was convicted, and he faced the death penalty, folks, back in that time. Why? Do, do you realize that when we talk about the trial and the death of Jesus, this is the most famous trial and death in the history of the world, folks? Just process that for a second. It's 2,000 years. And every single year at this time, a pretty significant population of the planet is remembering the trial and death and resurrection, obviously, of Jesus of Nazareth. This is 2,000 years. I'm going to be a little bit sarcastic here for a second. There's an individual in the United States who's making headlines right now because he's been indicted, he's been arraigned, he's been fingerprinted, right? It's the first time in the history of their country that a, that a former president has been, well, folks, arrested. He's been charged with 34, 34 counts of whatever. I mean, he's in a lot of trouble, apparently. Do you think that in, what was that? Felony, a felony. Okay, well, some trouble at least. Do you think that in 2,000 years, if we're still here, you're going to be talking every year about the arraignment of this individual? I don't think so. But in 2,000 years, if we're still here, I would bet money. And I can't lose because I won't be here in 2,000 years. But I would bet money that they'll still be talking about Jesus of Nazareth and his trial and his death and his resurrection. 
years and hundreds into 2,000 years, and it's going to keep going and going and going. That's, that's something else, folks. He never left Palestine, Israel, that area that we call it today. He never even traveled. And he's the mo this is the most famous trial and death penalty that's ever taken place in the history of the world. It's undeniable. You just have to remember Easter every year, and you've got it. And we could even argue every Sunday when churches gather. Why are they gathering? They're gathering around the fact that Jesus is the Son of God, and he rose from the dead. Well, if he rose from the dead, he must have died. There you go again, acknowledging the death of Jesus. This is the most famous execution in the history of the world. But I want you to, to forget about the supernatural stuff that happened on Good Friday being, what are the, some of those things that happened? There's some supernatural things that, that happened according to the Gospels on Good Friday. What are they? There's a curtain of the temple, which is really thick and really tall, was ripped in half from top to bottom, we're told. That's a miraculous thing, right? That's not, they didn't stand there and rip it. It ripped when Jesus died. Okay, what else? There was a weird darkness over the land for, I think the calculation, if I remember, is three hours. It's a bizarre kind of darkness over the land. Okay, that's another one. Forget about that for our discussion here tonight. Another thing? Pardon me? Sweating blood? Not a miracle. We know of people who have sweated blood before. It's very rare. They call it hematidrosis or something like that. It is a condition very, very rare. Not a miracle, but good observation. Uh, no, that's a prediction from the book of Joel, but good observation. The sun will be turned to darkness. The moon will be turned to blood on the day of the Lord. Joel chapter 2. That didn't happen on Good Friday, though. The what? The rooster crowed three times? Not a miracle. Not a miracle. I've heard roosters crow. Aha! There, we have in Matthew that there's graves that actually opened. Very interesting passage. The tombs have opened and people came out and walked around and were seen for a period of time. I want you to forget about that. I want you to forget about the earthquake also. There's an earthquake. We can put those things in the supernatural category. Forget about them. I want you to think of Jesus as he was a man and he was arrested and he was charged and he was convicted. He was, you know, fingerprinted, if you will. And he was executed, executed, faced the Roman death penalty. This I want you to keep in your mind as we, as we go through this tonight. I also want you to, to understand that the New Testament, the Gospels, they, I, I don't mean to be harsh when I say this, but the Gospels don't care that we are 2,000 years removed from the events. When the people wrote the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they probably had no idea that people would be reading this material 2,000 years later in the province of Quebec in North America. Folks, that's not what they were thinking. There was an immediate audience that they were writing to, that they were preaching to. That audience knew the time, that audience knew the culture, that audience knew the language, that audience knew the, the whole context of the thing. We don't. We're 2,000 years removed from it. And so you have to understand that when you look at the trial of Jesus 
and the crucifixion of Jesus, there are things that happen in there that the people of the time would get. And you're talking about a Jewish audience at that time. You probably have never read it and are not very familiar with it, but in Judaism, you have the Torah, right, which is the first five books of Moses. This is the authoritative word of God and really the whole Old Testament for them, right? I see some heads that are nodding. That's good, yes. Uh, but you also have, as authoritative, the so-called oral law of Moses, not just the written law. So not just the first five books of the Bible that Moses wrote, but you have the oral law. So when Moses went on the mountain and God gave him the law, he gave him the written law. But as the, as the belief goes in Judaism, he also gave them the oral, uh, gave Moses the oral law. And the oral law was, was talked through and repeated over and over and over again to the Jewish people for hundreds of years. It was not written down. It eventually got written down after the temple was destroyed, the second temple uh, in AD 70, as we talked about last week. So the oral law you can find today because it was written down. It's called the Talmud, okay, the Talmud. And the Talmud is, uh, is developed out of the first five books of the Old Testament. And it's an interpretation of this, but it's a whole bunch of additional stuff. It's a whole bunch of additional rules and regulations and laws and applications and interpretations and all these things that the rabbis went over and over and over again for centuries until they finally wrote, wrote it down. And you can go and find the Talmud and read the Talmud if you want. If you go to a synagogue, you're going to hear it preached and taught as if it's the Bible. You've never heard of it before. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John don't tell you when they're writing, hey, this is because in the Talmud, this is the way that th we do things according to the Talmud. Because the whole court system that you read about in the trial of Jesus in particular is based on what is in the Talmud. They're doing what it says. The civil detail of a court case is all there. So you need to know that because that's what's going on in this trial and leading up to the crucifixion with Pontius Pilate. All of this has its roots in the Talmud, okay? So I put it on your screen. You've got the oral law of Moses that we're seeing here, and the gospel writers assume that we know that this was in existence, but we don't know that it was in existence because we're 2,000 years removed from it, okay? Number three. You need to understand there is a reason, several reasons, why Jesus was rejected in particular by the religious leaders. You will notice as you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it's the common folks who adored Jesus, who, who he was uh, instantly followed by the common folks, especially the folks who were kind of rejected by the, the religious leaders and the, and the society. These are the people who flocked to Jesus, the common folk. But the religious leaders had big, big issues with him. And when I say religious leaders, I'm specifying you've got the Pharisees, right, who, who we typically love to hate <laughs> when we think about the Pharisees, the Sadducees, that's a different group. We've got the teachers of the law, the scribes, these are the people who copied the Old Testament, the chief priests, and then the high priest who was their boss. 
All of these groups had issues, big issues with Jesus. This is of paramount importance when you're talking about the trial and the execution of Jesus because this, their motives uh, are, are very much uh, critical for you to understand in this whole case. If you don't understand their motives, you're going you're gonna to zip over the Good Friday thing and you're going to miss the, the, the force of it. So you need to understand why is it that these people, not only do you forget about the supernatural for a few moments, not only do you remember you're dealing with the Talmud, and I'm going to read from you things from the Talmud in just a few moments, but why did these religious leaders reject him? After all, weren't they waiting for the Messiah? They seem to have been. So wasn't he the Messiah? Well, why did they reject him then? What was their beef with him? You've, this you can find very easily. You don't need to be a Bible scholar or you know, know the Talmud, as we're going to talk about in a second, to understand this. You just read the Gospels, and what do you see? You see that Jesus claims to have the authority to forgive sins, sins committed against God. And when he says, your sins are forgiven, they say, you can't do that. That's blasphemy. You can't forgive sins that only God can forgive. You can forgive someone who sins against you, but you can't forgive as if you're in the place of God. Who are you? You're just a man. That's blasphemy. He had a habit of eating with these common folks, tax collectors who were sneered and who people disliked, sinners, the term is used in the Gospels, a Samaritan woman. He's alone at a well talking with a woman, A. B, a Samaritan woman of all women. This was frowned upon by the religious leaders. He has a habit of not keeping the Sabbath the way that they want him to keep the Sabbath. He does things on the Sabbath. He seems to be violating their understanding of the Sabbath. Folks, that's in the Big Ten. That's in the Ten Commandments, the Sabbath, right? And he seems to be stepping over the line in what he's doing on the Sabbath, at least in their view. He eats on the Sabbath. He even does miraculous healings on the Sabbath. We'll break this down in a second. He seems to be, even in his hometown, they look at him and they say, he, who, where does he get, who does he think he is? Where does he get this authority from? We, we, he's the carpenter's son. We know his mother. We know his siblings. He's a nobody in the sense. He's just a commoner. And here he is talking like he has this kind of authority. And even in his own hometown, they're rejecting him. He breaks the elders' hand-washing traditions. This is in the Gospels as well. They say, why do you not wash your hands the way that we're supposed to wash your hands? You, you're, you don't fit the mold that we have for who the Messiah is supposed to be. He has the audacity to raise the moral ethic of the written law of Moses. So he takes something like marriage, and they try to challenge him on marriage, and they say, hey, can't we divorce our, our wives? Moses said we could divorce our wives. You know, we don't like her cooking or whatever, and we write her a certificate of divorce. And Jesus says, no, you're, you're totally off. 
here's here's the ideal God made the male and female in the beginning, and a man shall leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife. And you know why Moses allowed you to divorce? Because you've all got hard hearts, that's why. But that's not what God's original intention is. He, he had to accommodate you because of your obstinance and because of your sin. That's what he had to do. What? Who's he think he is? So raising the ethic of Moses like that and trying to put himself on, on that type of pedestal. This was, who do you think you are? He overturns the, the, the tables in the temple. We talked about it on, uh, on Palm Sunday. Uh, just briefly, he would, he would go into Jerusalem, but when he finally got into Jerusalem there, just after Palm Sunday, he gets really, really, well, angry, doesn't he? Because he goes into the temple courts, probably the court of the Gentiles, as it was called, where the Gentiles were allowed to go to worship. And what are they doing there? They're selling stuff. They're, they're exchanging money. They're probably ripping off people who were coming there to buy sacrifices for Passover. And they're coming from out of town. They've got to exchange their, their money. They're probably charging exorbitant prices for, on the exchange rate. This is why Jesus says you made it. It's a den of thieves. Well, they're probably stealing from the people. The people have no choice. They've got to buy their sacrifices. Say, well, here's the exchange rate. Take it or leave it. You, so in Jesus' mind, you're impeding the Gentiles from worship, and you're stealing, and it makes him angry, and he topples the tables, and he gets, he gets people really upset. Now, in the temple area, when you talk about Sadducees, Pharisees, all these different groups, simply put, the, the Sadducees were the sort of Jewish aristocracy, okay? They controlled the temple. They controlled the flow of money in and out of the temple. They controlled the operations of the temple. The Sadducees rejected uh, uh, the idea of a resurrection of the dead. They rejected this idea. The Sadducees rejected the idea of angels, the supernatural spirits. They rejected this idea. Uh, their interpretation of the Old Testament was different from the Pharisees. Pharisees had seemed to have had a higher degree of respect for the whole Old Testament as authoritative, whereas the interpretation of the Sadducees seems to have been limited to the law of Moses only, and they seem to have looked at the rest of the Bible a little differently than the Pharisees did. So, but the Sadducees were in control of the temple. Remember that. The Sanhedrin, who we'll meet in a few moments, this is a Jewish court, mostly Sadducees. The chief priests, mostly Sadducees. The high priest, he's a Sadducee. Uh, you can, I've joked about this before. It's not original to me. They're, the Sadducees are sad, you see, because they don't believe in the resurrection. That's the easiest way to remember it. Pharisees believed in a resurrection. Not Jesus's, but they believed in a resurrection of the dead that would happen at some time in the future. They believed in the supernatural. They believed in angels. They held to the whole Old Testament. But these two groups were at odds. But the Sadducees, they're in control of the money, the temple. The Sanhedrin is largely Sadducee and so on. All right. So just some some. Um, again, more context for you. He overturns the, the tables in the temple. He gets angry. Who's that going to make upset? The Sadducees. That's going to get the chief priests upset. That's going to get the high priest himself upset because Jesus is, is really literally, quite literally, upsetting the apple cart. 
okay? Uh, not only this, but Jesus uh, claims the authority of God. He claims to be doing things in God's very authority. He severely and repeatedly has these confrontations with all these religious leaders, doesn't he? I mean, he's not afraid to get in their face. He challenges them. He tells certain parables against them intentionally just to irritate them. They try to, to challenge him with all these questions. And then he gives answers that they, they don't understand how to answer. And he backs them into a corner. And they think to themselves, well, if we answer this way, then the crowd's going to react this way. And if we answer that way, then the crowd's going to, because he has a following of people, this Jesus. He's starting to really, really be an annoyance, a very severe annoyance, and he doesn't back down from these groups at all. He gets right in their face. If you read Matthew 23, the rebuke that Jesus has to this, the, the Pharisees and teachers of the law, I think it is there. Folks, he calls them a bunch of snakes. He literally calls them a bunch of snakes and says that they're going to hell. That's what he says. Read it. It's in Matthew 23. So Jesus, and he, he says it over. The problem is over and over and over again, he says it in that chapter. Like he gets right in their face. He does not back down from an argument about this. He's very annoyed and angered by their hypocrisy and the things that they do to people. And so this causes quite a stir, folks. This is going to get a reaction uh, even more, he did not overthrow Rome. We talked about this on Palm Sunday. They're looking for a Hosanna, God save us from the Romans, the palm tree there. The palm uh, is a date leaf. It gave uh, dates as, a, as, as like a fruit. Uh, that was a symbol of strength. When they put that symbol on things, that was like, we're going to be free. We want, we want strength. And this, so when they put those palm branches on the ground, they're saying, we want this strong Messiah to come and overthrow the tyranny of Rome. And Jesus is not doing that at all. He doesn't cause a global revival which in their mind, the Messiah is supposed to do. He does not gather, doesn't even seem to be concerned about gathering the, the people from who live outside of Israel to Israel. This is supposed to be done by the Messiah in their view. But in particular, he does these miracles and he does them right in the public, most of them, right in front of everybody and he does them, you can't minimize this, folks. He does them on the Sabbath day. So if you are that, that religious leadership and you look around at that and you see Jesus is healing this guy on the Sabbath and healing this one on the Sabbath, they look and they say, how can someone violate Moses? and violate the written law of Moses on the Sabbath by doing these things. This is a violation of the Big Ten in their mind. And he's got supernatural power. Notice they do not say this, is, this did not happen, this person wasn't healed. They never say that. 
they don't they, they don't say this is like a David David Copperfield in the street. He's doing street magic. You know, this is not a real healing. This is sleight of hand. This guy is a is a, a trickster. No, they don't say that at all. They say he's doing miracles, but by whose power? The devil. They say there's only one way that someone can violate the law of Moses, claim to be the Messiah, and do miracles at the same time. The miracles that the person is doing are because that person is an emissary of the evil one. That's what's going on here. This is a deceiver. This is a trickster. He's claiming to be the Messiah, the Son of God. He makes these claims in various different ways over and over again. You see it especially at this trial on uh, what would traditionally be held as Thursday night into Friday morning. You see Jesus making claims when he's pressed that he is the Messiah, the Son of God. He claims to be the fulfillment of the famous chapter in Daniel 7, the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. That's a messianic vision. He claims to be the fulfillment of this vision. He claims the divine name of God, calls himself the I Am. Uh, he claims to... Uh, uh, be God directly. In John's gospel, it says he was calling himself God, and therefore they wanted to stone him, John chapter 10. I mean, the way that they interpreted his remarks is that he is making direct claims of deity. He claims to be eternal. He says before Abraham was, I am, which they want to kill him when he says that. You say, that's such a harsh re response. Why would they want to kill him when he does that? Because, folks, in, in their minds, he is a deceiver. He is tricking the people. He's deceiving the people. He's empowered by Satan. And the more and more popular that he gets, the more and more prone we are to an uprising, to a revolt, if we have a revolt, the Romans are going to come and the Romans are going to crush us. They're going to take away our nation. They're going to take away our temple. And we will have nothing just like we had nothing back when the Babylonians did it to us. Their motives were to protect their people from Jesus. That's their motives, folks. They're mo if you looked at them and talked to them at that time, they feel like they're doing God a favor by trying to get rid of Jesus. Do you, do you get that? So for them, this is life or death. This is the hope of their nation. They've got to get rid of him because he is growing in popularity and he's obviously an imposter. It is a very crazy thing to us that Jesus does a miracle on the Sabbath day and they say he's empowered by Satan, right? We look at that and we say, what are they thinking, right? The reason why they're thinking that is because they're saying, but he's violating the Mosaic law. If he's violating the Mosaic law and he has these powers, then he has to be a deceiver and therefore he has to be stopped any way we can. These are blasphemous claims. He's got power. This power must be from darkness. He claims to be eternal. He claims to be equal with God. 
And this is just by reading the Gospels, you will see this very clearly. So the religious leadership, before you get to the trial, they thought that he's a blasphemous deceiver. They think that he's doing miracles by the devil's power, and yet he has a rapidly growing following of people. And we're moving into a particular Passover here, and they are thinking there's going to be trouble. Every Passover, the Romans would station more military in Jerusalem. Jerusalem, uh, some say, would swell from 50,000 to 500,000 because of the Passover. There would be all of these people who would come. People would be ripe looking for a messianic figure. Again, that's what we see on Palm Sunday. Jesus uh, uh, comes into Jerusalem, and they put these palm branches on the ground. So this is the background for the most famous of trials and executions by the death penalty. Before I get into the, the Talmud so that you see how spectacular this trial is and this crucifixion is, I want to read to you the one other place in the scripture where Jesus is recorded as crying with tears. There are three places. We talked about one of them on Palm Sunday uh, when Jesus is weeping there as he surveys Jerusalem. Now you know why he's weeping. The people think this of him. The people want to kill him, and they totally miss who he is. The religious leaders in particular want him dead. The crowd want him to be this military messiah. No wonder he's weeping. Hebrews chapter 5, during the days of Jesus' life on earth. And by the way, the only other instance we see of Jesus weeping is who? The, when a certain person dies, Lazarus dies, his friend. And Jesus wept. During the days of his life on earth, he offered up prayer and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. Tears to the one who could save him from death. Implicit in this is that Jesus, the man, because remember he's man and God at the same time, did not want to face that cross. Folks, that's normal. You wouldn't want to face a cross either. It took me years to understand this. I used to think, well, you know, Jesus is God. What's the big deal? He can face a cross. You know, he's God. He knows that he's going to rise from the dead. He knows that he's dying for people's sins. So what's the big deal if he faces a cross? He can handle a cross. After all, he's God. Folks, that is such an erroneous and mistaken view of the nature of Jesus because that makes Jesus like the man of steel. You know, he's like Superman, the man of steel. Hey, put him on a cross, no problem. He'll take those nails. He's the man of steel, and he's going to rise from the dead anyway. Folks, what an erroneous view I had. Jesus is 100% human and 100% God at the same time. That's the way the scripture teaches it. So, of course, he's not going to want to face a cross, a Roman execution on a cross. Folks, that's the most brutal of ways to die. We get the word excruciating pain. When we say excruciating, you know what that comes from? The crucifixion. That's where we get it from. The word cross, they wouldn't even utter back then in that time. It was such a, a gross and violent way to die. So with tears, he cries to the one who could save him 
from death, the author of Hebrews tells us. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. You'll see why in a few moments and how reverent that submission was. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered and once made perfect, which means once he went to the cross, if you read Hebrews, that's what it means. He became the source of eternal salvation for all. A-L-L, it should be there, who would obey him. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 to 9. How was Jesus so submissive to the will of God, even though he did not want to face that cross? As a human, what does he do? He cries out in the garden, doesn't he? And he says, if there is another way, take this cup from me. That's where we have the sweat like tears, uh, as J.J. had observed there. That's why, because he's under such strain and such pressure that his, his, his tears or his sweat, I'm sorry, are, is actually like blood. That's an actual condition that can happen under extreme, extreme duress. Very, very rare, but there is a condition like that where your sweat actually turns to blood uh, and the pores open and so on. Uh, but I want you to see how, and this is where, again, we get into this region of what the Talmud says. This is how the court was supposed to operate. Here's what you need to know, because some of these details you're, you're definitely going to forget unless you rewatch this. By the legal standards, okay, by the standards of the Talmud that we'll talk about in a minute of that time, this never should have happened, folks. He, he never should have faced a Roman execution like that. It never, ever should have happened. And the extremes to which this trial was an absolute miscarriage of justice, an absolute Keystone Cops gong show episode, is, it's ridiculous, folks, how bad it is. Um, it, very helpful uh, to read some, uh, some of the people who have researched the Talmud that can tell you, okay, this is what the Talmud says, this is how the Sanhedrin and the court system was supposed to run, and so on. I'll give you a couple of references. I draw heavily on them. Uh, Walter Chandler wrote a book about, I think it's about 75, 100 years ago, called The Trial of Jesus. It's noted as probably the best work on the subject. Um, Dr. Paul Meyer. You want to remember that name. If you do anything tonight and you want to get into a good Friday mood, um, you can watch. If you go on YouTube, okay, if you can get on YouTube somehow and you want to, go, uh, to search for, uh, it's a video. I think you can still watch it for free. It's about 35 minutes. It's called The Week That Changed the World. The Week That Changed the World. It's Paul Meyer. He's a terrific uh, Christian historian, it'll really put you back into the time and the mood of, of the trial and the crucifixion of Jesus. It's called The Week That Changed the World by Paul Meyer. Again, about 35-minute uh, video. And also, I would say to you, if you want to get into the Good Friday mood, uh, it's difficult to watch, but still, folks, I would still say it's got to be the best media presentation on the trial and crucifixion of Jesus that's ever been put to media, and that is 
uh, Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ. Extremely violent, extremely disturbing. Uh, I'll put some screenshots from the movie in a few moments, but still will we'll get you into the, the, the feel and the flavor of what Jesus went to when we went and suffered as we talk about this submission, this reverent submission that he went through in this whole process. Um, uh, reading from here, um, this is from 1916. I came across this from the Kentucky Law Journal uh, way back, this is 100 and whatever, 107 years old uh, by Dr., I don't know if he's a doctor actually, but a lawyer, I think, Charles uh, Hawley from uh, New York, yet a lawyer. And uh, here's what he says about how, according to the Talmud, uh, this court that Jesus faced was supposed to run. Uh, I'll read from him. It was provided that unless taken in the actual commission of a crime, no person could be arrested without a formal accusation. So you can't arrest a person, according to the Talmud, you can't arrest a person unless they're in the act of the crime or you've got a formal accusation placed against the person. Just remember, the Sanhedrin, this is the Supreme Court, if you will, of the people, they have a place of meeting where they would convene. Uh, it's, it's not the palace of the high priest, as we'll see in the Gospels. They met in his palace. They weren't supposed to. There's a place called the Hall of Hewn Stones, which was like an annex of the temple. And this is where the Sanhedrin was supposed to convene when they had a court case. They had to meet there. And yet we see in the Gospels, Jesus is being tried in the, in the guy's house, in his palace you know, in the middle of the night. You had to have a certain number present for a capital case. They want to bring Jesus to death. You had to have 23 or 21, some say 23 members. It depends who you talk to and their interpretation of the Talmud there. But you had to have a certain quorum if you're going to try a person on a capital charge and you want to put them to death. Uh, the accused is presumed to be innocent, until proven guilty. We still see this in the law today in a lot of places, including Canada. Innocent until proven guilty. No one could be tried or condemned unless they were there. They had to be present, right? Seems logical. The oath, there was an oath that the witness had to uh, um, proclaim. And this oath was called the oath of the testimony. And the person would say, by the living God. You see this? In the, in the court case with Jesus, you'll see the high priest finally push Jesus to that limit. I'll show you that in a second. It's the duty of the priest presiding to call attention of witnesses to the value of life and warn them not to forget anything they knew in the prisoner's favor. So anybody who had anything good to say about this prisoner had to had to uh, try and do that to give them the benefit of the doubt again innocent until proven guilty counsel must be appointed for his defense as you recall jesus didn't have any lawyer <laughs> did he counsel must be appointed according to the talmud evidence in his favor was to be freely admitted so you couldn't suppress any evidence if it was in his favor. No judge who had once spoken for the acquittal could change to a vote for conviction. 
So if a judge says guilty, who's on the Sanhedrin, they can't flip-flop if they say innocent. They can't flip-flop if they, if they acquit. You can't turn around and convict. The votes of the younger members, get this, were taken first that they might not be influenced by the older associates. So the young ones in the room, let's get their vote first. We don't want to hear the, the, the older ones talk because they may sway them. Sounds very much like this whole system was geared to, to give the person a fair trial, doesn't it? Sounds really quite reasonable. A verdict of acquittal could be given at once, but that of guilty could not be pronounced until a day after the conclusion of the trial. In other words, let them sleep on it. That's kind of what's being said there. Fascinating. The trial in a capital case must begin and be held only during the daytime. When did they try Jesus? At night, in the middle of the night. They're rushing this panic in the air with these people. They're violating their own laws in this whole caper. It's an absolute mess from the standpoint of the Talmud. Uh, if judgment of acquittal was not reached on the day the trial ended, the court was obliged to adjourn. For the judges who condemned were required to fast for a day before they pronounced judgment. Again, you see this really trying to help the, the prisoner, to help the accused. In minor cases, Jesus' was a major case, but in minor cases, counsel could be heard on both sides. But in a capital case, only for the accused. Only for the accused. Wow, they're really trying, they should be trying to help the person, give the person every opportunity to be declared innocent of their crime. Wow, it really seems to be slanted toward helping this person. The accused could not be called to testify, nor made a witness against himself. But this is exactly what they did to Jesus. He's not even supposed to be talking. His lawyer is supposed to be talking for him, and yet Jesus has no lawyer, and they're pressing him to defend his own self. He could not be convicted on the testimony of a single witness. At least two must testify in the presence of the accused and agree together. Their testimony on this question of agreement was required to be scrutinized carefully and technically Every rule that ingenuity could devise, so says this, this uh, writer about this Talmudic, uh, Talmudic law, every rule that ingenuity could devise and every presumption was in favor of the accused, according to the Talmud. And yet you see quite the opposite in the case of Jesus, there was a common saying in the day, the Sanhedrin was to save, not to destroy life. This is the Jewish court, the same court that Jesus faced. The, the safeguards of the law continue here. The doomed man, one, if he's convicted, get this, was led away to be stoned. Now in Jesus' case, they're, they want a public execution. They wanted him uh, 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 
executed in front of the crowds, in front of all these people so that they could stop this following of him. And the Jews at that time could not do that. It was the Romans who did that. They were, had the death penalty publicly and legally, of course, they're in charge. The Jews, had, by their law, they could stone someone, but that would be illegal. The Romans would not like that if they did that in a public sense. So they're trying to push Jesus to a public execution. It's not good enough to try and stone him. They want it done so that everybody sees. They want the Romans to see. They want everybody to see. So they want to push him to a cross, to a public execution. Now, if a person was, was uh, condemned, they're led away in their law to be stoned. But the court, get this, would remain in session while the guy is going out to be stoned to death, they keep the court in the room and an officer stands at the door with a signal flag. Another follows the prisoner and his attendants to the farthest point from which he could see the signal. And if any new witness, while the guy's being led off to be stoned, they keep the courtroom open. If any new witness comes at the very last minute, to prove the innocence of the convicted man, the signal flag was waved. Hold the phone, everybody. Don't throw any stones. We've got a new witness who's going to overturn this conviction, right? Wave the flag, and the attendant at the distant point hastened on and recalled him for further hearing. Stop the stoning. We've got a new witness. I mean, my goodness, folks. They made every possible effort for the benefit of the accused, didn't they, according to the Talmud. But according to what happened, according to the Gospels, it's almost the complete, complete opposite. So uh, we have uh, a quote from one of the most famous uh, references to Jesus outside of the Bible, the existence of Jesus outside the Bible. One of the most famous ones and one of the strongest ones is from the, the, uh, the historian Tacitus. And in the imperial annals of Rome, he writes about how an emperor Nero in 64 set fire to the city of Rome. And he, he blames Christians for this. He uses them as a scapegoat, if you will. He's a bit of a, he's a, bit of a character for sure, Nero, if you study him. Really quite something. So this is what Tacitus writes. It's fascinating when you think about it with reference to the trial of Jesus. So he says this, but not all the relief that could come from one man, not all the bounties that the prince could bestow, nor all the atonements which could be presented to the gods, availed to relieve Nero of the infamy of being believed to have ordered the conflagration, the fire of Rome. Hence, to suppress the rumor he falsely charged with guilt and punished Christians who were hated for their enormities. Christus, the founder of the name, was put to death by Pontius Pilate, procurator of Judea in the reign of Tiberius. But the pernicious superstition repressed for a time broke out again, not only through Judea, where the mischief originated, but through the city of Rome also, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. <laughs> Quite the writer. 
Accordingly, an arrest was, made, was first made of all who pleaded guilty. Then upon their information, an immense multitude was convicted, not so much of the crime of firing the city as of hatred against mankind. Quite the love for Christians, huh? But notice, he talks about Christus, the founder of the name, put to death by Pontius Pilate. Why? What's his crime? Doesn't say. Doesn't say what he's convicted of. I mean, he faced the death penalty. What was he guilty of? What's he convicted of? Why did this happen? Doesn't say. Well, what do the Gospels say? When you look at what happened to Jesus, folks, it, it's it's really astounding. So, number one, it's illegal. It was illegal for them to perform this arrest at night, right? We, we, it's very clear in the Gospels. You have the aid of an informant. What's his name? Judas. He's an informant. There's no intent at all to conduct a legal trial for Jesus. I mean, they conspire to find a way to arrest him before the Passover because they're afraid of this riot. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they say this. The chief priests, the elders, the officers of the temple guard, the high priest himself plot to arrest him in some sly way and kill him without disturbing the Passover feast. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they say he's arrested very late on what we think of traditionally at least as Thursday night. So late at night that Peter, James, and John are sleeping when Jesus goes off to pray. He's, they're sleeping. They're dozing off three times. I mean, these guys are fishermen. I mean, it must have been really, really late at night. Key figure in the whole thing is Judas Iscariot. He's paid off. They don't know what Jesus looks like necessarily. It's late at night. They've got to have somebody on the inside. Judas comes and says, what will you give me if I hand him over to you? I know who he is. They say 30 pieces of silver. Folk, the whole thing is done in a big panic to try and find a way to get rid of him because they think that there's going to be a riot, a revolt at Passover. John 11, we're going to lose our nation. We're going to lose our temple. They're going to come in and crush us just like the Babylonians did because we are disobedient to God by letting this rebel, by letting this blasphemer, by letting this demon-possessed teacher strip us of everything. He must be stopped. What do they do? They examine him at night. Very clear in the Gospels. Um, you see it in, first he goes to Annas in, in John's gospel. Annas isn't even the high priest at the time. Uh, his relative Caiaphas is, but Annas isn't. And if you read John's gospel, you'll see that Annas tries to press Jesus. Jesus doesn't talk to him, doesn't answer him. Why? Because Jesus knew the Talmud. This guy, Annas, is not the high priest. He's a relative of the high priest. He used to be the high priest, but he's not the high priest anymore. He's been deposed by Rome at that point. And so Jesus, I have, no, I have nothing to say to you. You're not even the right person to question me. This is because Jesus knows the Talmud. He ends up with, actually in front of Caiaphas, then the Sanhedrin, then Pontius Pilate, then over to Herod Antipas, then back to Pontius Pilate. It's ridiculous, folks, what he had to endure. Why was this not stopped? in mid-flight it continues and continues and continues they go and they accuse Jesus but they do so vaguely there isn't a formal correct proper accusation it's all done in this big uh, uh, rush 
Um, uh, we see that it's done in, in private. We see that it's assisted by the high priest. There's no real witness to this. You've got the Sanhedrin assembling at night. They're not supposed to assemble at night. A, B, they're supposed to be in the hall of hewn stones. They're not. They're in the guy's palace. They go and rush this thing. No one is saying anything. No one is stopping it. No one is saying this is a kangaroo court. This is a mistrial. Stop this now. This is not right. We're violating our own principles. Nobody says that. Sanhedrin convenes with two indictments, you see, before the morning sacrifice. Uh, so, uh, um, where am I here? Okay, yeah. So, you, you, in, in, in that time, remember, there's no separation of church and state, okay? Religion and law, they're all meshed together. There isn't what we have today. And so, you could not have these indictments made in this way. They're supposed to be made after the morning sacrifices. And yet, you see Matthew and Mark, they record these things. You've got sorcery and you've got blasphemy that's being charged. And they say, well, this man claimed to uh, destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Ha ha, that's sorcery. This man's a blasphemer. He calls himself the son of God. That's blasphemy. And they've got two indictments, but they do this before. They're not supposed to do this before the morning sacrifice. They're supposed to wait till it's over. And they didn't. Proceedings are supposed to be conducted on the day before the Sabbath. This was violated again. The sentence is supposed to be founded on an uncorroborated confession. This did not happen. You, I mean, it's, it's one thing after the other, after the other, after the other. It's, it's so bad, folks, that the, the skeptics who know uh, the Talmud and know about these laws look at this and they say... It's what you're reading here could not have happened. This trial of your, your, your Jesus, there's no way because the Talmud forbids all of this nonsense. And there's just no way that this even could have happened. Look, maybe your Jesus died on a cross one day. We'll give you that. But this trial is utter nonsense because everything is being violated. It was illegal for the Sanhedrin's verdict to be unanimous. You had to have at least one naysayer in the bunch. You had to have at least one person say, He's innocent. You couldn't have everybody say he's guilty, and yet they're all saying that he's guilty. They do it again. They sentence him to death. They're not even in the, the hall of hewn stones at the temple. And so what do they do? Once they find him guilty, apparently of, I don't know, nothing. What, sorcery? I mean, it's a misquote, folks. When they say he said that he would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, what was he really saying? He's talking about his own death and resurrection. He's not talking about the temple. They take that, it's out of John 2, and they totally misquote the thing, and they throw it at him at his trial. I mean, it's, it, it's nonsense what they're doing, folks. And they, they, they just keep going with this. And then you get this high priest, and he finally invokes the oath of the testimony, and he says to him, uh, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. And what does Jesus say? You have said so. 
you have said so. But I tell all of you, and this is going to enrage the high priest. From now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. It's right out of Daniel chapter 7. The high priest tears his clothes. By the way, the high priest is not supposed to do that. And he, he says he has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Because the Talmud says you are supposed to have more witnesses. But he says, no, why do we need any more witnesses? Look, you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered. All of them. Why? Are, no one has the courage to say this is ridiculous. They spit in his face. They strike him with their fists. They slap him. And they, pro, they say, pro, blindfold him. You see in another gospel. They, prophes, they say, prophesy to us, Messiah. Who hit you? Not treating him fairly in the least, folks. Not in the least. And it continues and continues and continues. And then they say, okay, it's Friday morning. We're going to go to Pontius Pilate now. Because we found him guilty, apparently, of what? Sorcery, which is a trumped-up charge. Blasphemy. Well, okay, blasphemy, but for Rome, that's nothing. That's a Jewish problem. You guys have your own issues with your own religion blasphemy is not a crime that we we're going to crucify someone on a roman cross for your blasphemy that's your own jewish problem but they're going to go to pontius pilate and what do they do they change the whole thing when they get to pontius pilate and they say look he's trying to he's not submissive uh, to 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 rome he, he doesn't want to pay taxes he, he calls himself a king ah He's calling himself a king. Well, hold on a second. I thought, I thought it was blasphemy and, and sorcery. And no, we've got a new charge now. He calls himself a king. And what does Pontius Pilate do? He says, I need to talk to this guy. And I, because Pilate has himself in a real political corner. You can read the history books about him. You've got several incidents, one of them pretty close to Good Friday, where Pilate, who was stationed there in Judea, which was a kind of an unruly province to keep the peace there, he's done some things to annoy the people, uh, to annoy the Jewish people. And uh, the, the Tiberius Caesar gets quite upset with, uh, with Pilate. And we do have record of a letter that he wrote to Pilate. Apparently, it's got some really vulgar language in it. It's written in Latin. And he basically says, if there's one more incident, you will have outlived your usefulness in Judea. So he puts him on notice. Shortly after, he's dealing with his Jesus on Friday morning. They want to put him to death, and they're irate toward Pilate. He takes Jesus into his quarters and he starts talking to Jesus and he's, what am I supposed to do with him? I don't find him guilty of anything. He, he doesn't want anything to do with this problem. He learns that Jesus is from Galilee. And so he says, ah, I'm going to kill two birds with one stone here. Herod Antipas is the one who, uh, who had told Tiberius Caesar about the things that he didn't like about Pontius Pilate. Herod Antipas is part of the Herod family. They're sort of client kings 
for Rome, and Antipas is in charge of Galilee. So he says, oh, I'm going to send him off to the Galilean leader, Herod Antipas, and get, get rid of this problem. I don't want to deal with it. Maybe Herod won't be so upset with me. He was upset with me before. He wrote my boss before, so I'm going to let him deal with Jesus. Ha ha, and this will kill two birds with one stone. What does Antipas do? He says, Jesus, do a magic trick for me right? Do a miracle in front of me. I've heard all these things about you. What does Jesus do? Nothing. He doesn't give him what he wants at all. So Herod Anubis gets fed up, and what does he do? He sends him right back to Pilate, and Pilate's got the problem once again. He's being squeezed into a political corner. We see his wife has, a, has a, a dreams, nightmares about Jesus. His wife says, don't have anything to do with this guy. I've had dreams about him in the night, you know, and Pilate's weighing all of this in his head. He's got his wife on one hand. He's got his boss on the other hand. He's in a, he's in a powder keg. He's in a pressure cooker. So what does he do? He tries a trick that's commonly used today. We call it the presidential pardon. Presidents do this all the time. They let criminals off, right? And so he tries this. He's got Barabbas on the one side, and he's got Jesus on the other side. And so he says to the crowd, and this crowd is a peculiar crowd. This is a temple setting. This crowd is probably largely Sadducee and influenced by the Sadducees because they're going to call for Jesus' crucifixion. This can't be the same crowd that was calling him the Messiah on Palm Sunday. This has to be a kind of a rigged crowd by the Sadducees who want to call for his crucifixion and not for him to overthrow Rome. There has to be a difference here. And so he's going to try the presidential pardon. Maybe we can get Jesus off this way because I don't want anything more to do with him. I'm going to please this crowd and maybe they will accept him and I will exonerate him of these crazy charges that these Jewish people have put on him. And of course the crowd says, no, we want Barabbas. We want Barabbas. We want Barabbas. And Pilate, well, what am I going to do with Jesus of Nazareth? And what do they say? Crucify him. Crucify him. Crucify him. We want the death penalty for him. So what does Pilate do? Pilate says, well, I don't want to crucify him. I'm going to flog him. So he sends Jesus off to be flogged. This is the, probably the most famous and brutal scene of Mel Gibson's rendition of this. But it might well be accurate, folk, because you've got the whole company of the Roman guard around him. And they could have been beating him to a pulp, folks. I mean, when Jesus was crucified, if you run the timing, it's only six hours. He's only on the cross for six hours. That's short Relatively speaking, it's short. We know of criminals who were crucified and it took days for them to die. You didn't die because there was nails put in you. Uh, that wasn't how you died. You died because you couldn't breathe. You're trying to push yourself up to breathe on this cross. And after a while, you die essentially by asphyxiation. This is how you died. It wasn't because you were nailed. So it's a very quick death. Six hours is very fast. Maybe it's because they were brutal with him, particularly brutal in this flogging. They bring him back in the, in the robe there. And, 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 and they call for his crucifixion. Crucify him. Crucify him. And Pilate's like, but what has he done? Well, he claimed to be a king. He claimed to be the king of the Jews. And finally they say to him, 
If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar, Tiberius, your boss. It, as it turns out, there was actually a club. In Latin, they call it the Amici Caesar, the, um, the Friends of Caesar Club. The only way that you got kicked out of that club was if you were sent into exile or if you were executed for high treason. So they say, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Maybe he was in the club. I don't know. But they put pressure on him. And so finally he says, I'm going to crucify him. But, but Pilate famously washes his hands of the thing and he says i am innocent of this man's blood it is your responsibility and one of the greatest ironies they say let his blood be on our heads and on our children's heads it's the blood of jesus that's for their salvation and they're saying it for the total opposite reason so Pilate tries to exonerate himself of this whole thing, and he sends Jesus off to be crucified. And again, his crucifixion is relatively quick, folks. Maybe it's the loss of blood with the sweat turning uh, to, to blood drops. Uh, maybe it's the brutality of a flogging. We're not entirely sure, but it's very, very quick, relatively speaking anyway. So the question is, well, how did this continue? How did this, I mean, it's ridiculous. It's so bad, folks, again, that the skeptics say this is, this is not, this could not have happened. These writers of this Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're putting this down uh, maybe because they think the readers of it are naive or something and they're going to believe it. Uh, this, they've conspired to write this. This is a fanciful tale. This proceeding would have never happened from a legal standpoint as per their own Talmud law. It's, it's as if there is a, a force behind the scenes that is pushing Jesus to the cross. As you read it, it's almost like that's what it is. There's something or someone behind there that keeps this whole thing moving forward. Forward, forward, one more step, one more step to the cross. And it's like, who is that? What is that thing? What is that person behind the scenes that is doing that? Who is responsible? Why was Jesus found guilty and executed? Guilty, apparently, of nothing. I mean, in the end, they, they, Pilate puts on the on the, the plaque there that they would always put on the cross what the person was guilty of. And Pilate writes, this is the king of the Jews. And even that annoys those accusing him because they say, no, no, don't write that. Put this man said he was the king of the Jews, right? So in the end, who is responsible for this? Is it, is it the Jews? I mean, there are people who say, you know, the, 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 the Bible, the New Testament is anti-Jew. Well, is it really the Jews? Is it the Jewish leadership? Is it the high priest? Is it these people? Is it the Romans? Is it Pontius Pilate? Is it the people who drove the nails into him? Is it the devil himself? Who's responsible for this? The most famous of trials is an absolute mistrial, and the execution of Jesus never should have happened, and yet it happened clear, crystal clear, still celebrated and remembered 
2,000 years later, I will tell you who is responsible. It's God himself. It's not the Jews. It's not the Gentiles. It's God himself who is pushing Jesus to that cross. God arranged the whole thing. Isaiah chapter 53 verse 10. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. It was the Lord's will. Author of Hebrews, Jesus, reverent submission, cried out to the Father with tears, and yet was heard because of his reverent submission. What he went through that he did not have to go through at all for us is a Astounding, folks. Absolutely astounding. Who is ultimately responsible for this? Really, none other than God himself. And Jesus voluntarily submits to this whole thing. He says, not my will, but yours be done. So, You've been hanging in really, really well. I know this is a heavy lot of information, all right? I hope it's, I hope it's helpful. We're going to make it practical for you. If the band could come up and we're going to finish up here and take communion, I'll give you a little bonus tonight. Those of you who are here in the room, we're going to do communion tonight, and we're also going to do communion on Sunday morning, okay? So if the musicians could come and uh, begin to play. I want to give you two possible responses for your life, something very practical for you to ponder on Good Friday 2023. Two possible responses uh, for you. And hopefully you have uh, emblems with you as well. Uh, if you don't and you want to participate in communion tonight, Ezra will... We'll give you some emblems here, and we've got them all prepackaged in this little thing here tonight. Um, so two possible responses for you. Uh, number one, maybe as you look at Jesus and you look at what he endured for you, maybe there's something that's going on in your own life, and it's an unjust circumstance. It's an unjust process. There's something that's happening to you. And maybe as you look at the example of Jesus, you actually need to submit to it, even as he submitted to it. First Peter chapter 2, verses 20 to 25, but if you suffer for doing good and endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. From Isaiah, he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. He wasn't guilty of anything. When they heard their, hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself, that's that reverent submission, to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. 
Maybe that's you tonight, and there's something going on, and you say it's not fair, it's unjust. Maybe, I'm not saying this is the case all the time, but maybe in your particular circumstance, you've got to submit to it. And maybe you need to entrust yourself to God in that whole circumstance and wait to see what He does, even as Jesus entrusted Himself to God when He faced the cross. Maybe that's you tonight. Or maybe you just need to submit yourself in a deeper way to God. When we talk about worship, it's not just singing and, and music. Folks, it's about surrender. It's about giving all of yourself, all of your, 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 your time, your talent, your treasure, all of yourself over to God. Maybe that's what you need to do. Maybe there's areas of your life and they're not submitted to God. And you need to submit them even as Jesus was submissive to the Father in everything that he endured for us. If you have your emblems with you, why don't you peel back the top uh, layer here. It's a little different than what we use on Sundays, so you want to take your time with that. And you're going to see a little wafer there that's exposed and this is taught by Jesus. We learned this uh, on Wednesday night when we looked at Passover. He, he took the, that, that unleavened bread and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. What's he doing? He's saying, I'm going somewhere. He's talking about his own death. He's talking about the cross. But he's also talking about us. We are the body of Christ. Do this in remembrance of me. Would you partake of the bread with me? And Jesus took a cup that night. And we learned that it was called most probably the cup of redemption from the Passover. And he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, referring to that blood that was shed on the cross 2,000 years ago. And he again says, do this in remembrance of me. Would you partake of the juice with me? Father, we're so grateful and so thankful uh, for all that you have done for us. And we learn tonight on Good Friday, the submission and Lord, the, the circumstances that Jesus endured for us. It's hard for us to even process. Lord, he had all the power to stop it. He had all the ability to change the outcome. And yet he submitted to you for our good and for our salvation. Help us, Lord, to worship in a deeper way as a result tonight. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Stand and sing with us.
Contain our God. 